Welcome to MedTech Speed to Data, a KeyTech podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rogers, VP of Business Development at KeyTech. Each month, me and a KeyTecher are going to interview a MedTech leader and talk to them about the critical data-driven decisions they make in their programs. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to MedTech Speed to Data. I'm your host, Andy Rogers from KeyTech, episode 22. Here we go. We've got Venk Varadhan, CEO of NanoWare. Venk, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Andy and KeyTech for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, very excited to have you here. And as we were talking in our show prep, you know, definitely want to understand the whole picture of Venk here before we get into to NanoWare. Uh, you know, you are uh, a renaissance man, as, as, as I can tell biomedical engineering and business. And it uh, sounds like you're involved in the arts in New York City, which is super cool. You were a movie producer, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I haven't watched the movie, but um, you know the, the, the movie, An American in Hollywood. Uh, maybe if you're listening, check it out. But um, you know, can you tell us a little bit about that, that movie producer uh, experience? Probably the biggest... Uh and it'll sound strange as a, as a med tech and digital health CEO, but probably my best prep for a first time founder and CEO was, was producing films. Um, my twin brother uh, is an NYU film grad. And uh, when I, when I, when we, when we left high school and I went off to science and engineering and, and, and chemistry, he um, went to NYU and uh, uh, majored in film and visual arts. So as I started my career and he started his career, we would work our separate jobs, but do his productions on the side as, as, a, as a standard independent filmmakers or, you know, a, a film is independent films are very much like startups in that regard. So uh, we produced, um, he was the writer director and, uh, and I would produce. So, just managing the the budget, the the schedule, all the stuff that the creatives are uh, not necessarily great at, or even if they have to focus on, they're kind of taking away from their craft. So, if he needed a light in a, in a certain position and he needed the restaurant between midnight and four, that's me uh, 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 kind of negotiating that. So, uh, we we produced a short film in two thousand five. That world premiered at Tribeca Film Festival. Uh, and then the big, the first feature was an American in Hollywood. It was loosely based on uh, my twin brother, Cy, growing up in the film world in New York, getting trained in New York, and then moving out to L.A. Uh, with several of his friends uh, to try and uh, break into the industry. So it was kind of the the minority version of Entourage, except they don't make it. Uh <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was kind of thinking. It kind of reminded me of Entourage, but you know, you know, KeyTech's here in Baltimore, and, and two of the it seemed like two of the lead actors were were from uh, the HBO series The Wire. So uh, I was impressed. So um, definitely going to watch the video or the movie. Yeah, it's on. It's on all the, the streaming services, and yeah, uh, JD and Hassan, uh, both from The Wire, are still really good friends uh, uh, to me and my brother and our and our former staff. My brother's still running the company. It's called B Twins Productions. Not surprisingly, and. Um, uh, they were fantastic to work with. It was uh, it was a really really great experience. But as I mentioned, I think a good proxy. You know, we launched that in 2014. I I started Nanoware in sort of late 2014, which we'll get into, but is also a little bit of a family affair. Uh, but a really really good prep in that regard. So while I am a first time founder and CEO, I think there's a lot of lessons you can pick up from 
from being a film producer. So while they sound divergent and, and more of a renaissance history, as you say, I, there are a lot of parallels. Yeah, I would say dealing with personalities and trying to hit deadlines is probably the first first couple of thoughts that come to mind. But the other thought that comes to mind to me is, um, you know, you really do need to be a storyteller. And and I pretend to be a storyteller here on, on Speed to Data on, our, on the podcast. But, you know, I know as CEO of, of NanoWare and, and, and your, your product, SimpleSense, you have to tell that story and, and doing the research, and, and I want to get into it here, it seems like that story evolves depending on where you are in development, which, which aligns very well with our speed to data thinking, which is at the outset, what's most important, uh, what data is most important to collect, to demonstrate to yourselves as a company, to investors and to stakeholders. And you know what, how does that story change as the company evolves? So definitely uh, interested in the hardware and the software side. So can you describe to our audience what what you're doing at NanoWare in the simple sense? And it's a, it's a wearable continuous monitor. Uh, just describe that in more detail. Yeah, here we go. Uh, you know, NanoWare is uh, we're a New York based um, healthcare at home remote diagnostics or connected care platform, and we're built on our core invention from advanced material sensors that feeds this very unique data set uh, that we ultimately run machine learning on. But that ground floor of our technology is what we call cloth nanotechnology. So you can see this in the screen. It's just a, uh, a standard sort of piece of fabric that you would see if you were touching it in person. Uh, but if you if you touch the surface area of the of the cloth, it is uh, it feels felty or suede like underneath your fingertips, and that's you feeling billions of vertically standing sensors or nanosensors per centimeter of surface area. And not to get too deep into the actual engineering and physics of it, but all of those billions of touch points on your skin uh, enable a much higher sort of uh, signal to noise ratio of varying different. Uh, raw biomarkers that can be detected off the skin. So acoustic signals, electrical signals, uh, bioimpedance signals. And because we can do all of that time synchronously, there's a lot of derivatives based on where we're, we're capturing um, sensors that derive some more derived uh, uh, biomarkers. So we're really proud to say this is the first cloth that FDA has, has 510K cleared in the world for, for capture and transmission of essential performance biomarkers. Um, but as you had mentioned on, on the evolution of what we were doing with that, we started with this cloth, knew it was giving fantastic data and we didn't necessarily know the right place to start in building a business. Um, I think most entrepreneurs in, in, in the tech world or even med tech or healthcare, I think identify a problem and build the tech, uh, to sort of solve it. We were kind of the opposite. And the reason for that is another family affair. This was actually our co-founder's um, life's work uh, invention. And our co-founder is a 40-plus year academic researcher, Dr. Vijay Vardhan, who is my father. Uh, and so he did a lot of defense-related applications for many years before the word nanotechnology uh, was even created. He and my mother uh, both taught at Penn State University, which is where uh, me and, and my siblings grew up. Uh, as well as the University of Arkansas. And uh, my father's research was mostly focused on expanding surface area in a, in a footprint where you can't expand area, but getting signal detection. So if you think about hard to detect environments, um, a submarine under 30 meters of sea level, uh, you can't expand the, the, the size of the hull of the submarine where the sonar detectors are, right? 
but after you get under a certain depth with the pressure, sonar detection from deeper depths are start to become untraceable between each other. You don't know if that detection is from a whale, a school of fish, a geyser, or a Russian sub, right? And so, you know, he would he would lace the hull with these nanosensors, right, that could start to filter out every millisecond those varying differences in the reverberations of different sonar signatures. Did the same thing with, with high-altitude planes. And then kind of thought that the human body is kind of the same hard-to-detect environment um, and applied that same strategy. And can you describe what biomarkers you're sensing with your wearable device? Yeah. So again, depending on uh, trying to figure out what you're looking for in the application and our current uh, device and product, which I'm sure we'll talk about how we got there, our, our nanosensor technology in the orientation that it has, it's sort of a shoulder sash. It goes over your, your right shoulder. Um, and think of it sort of replacing um, the stethoscope, uh, the multi-channel Holter monitor, um, lung volume, breaths per minute, pulse ox, activity movement posture, and continuous um, uh, systemic hemodynamics or blood, blood pressure. So you're replacing uh, all of those first-line diagnostic tools in a time-synchronous manner. And we can replace all those tools through the raw metrics that we can capture, electrical signals, bioimpedance signals, acoustic signals. And really give a time-synchronous cardiopulmonary assessment uh, in that regard. All of those tools I mentioned, the stethoscope, the blood pressure cuff, the um, uh, even the pulse ox, for example, uh, these tools are sort of applied when you go see your doctor, even if you're healthy uh, or you're, you're very sick, they're applied for 30 seconds at a point of time. Um, the human body and the mind sort of know that they're being monitored and uh, you result in aspects of white coat syndrome, right? So our thesis was always, can we do this in a home-based uh, solution where participants of a trial or patients in general are sort of living their natural life and we're getting sort of much more than 30 seconds of data, about 45 minutes of data. So after that first minute or two, they, they throw this comfortable sort of sash on that they can kind of go about doing uh, uh, what their what their normal sort of course of routine was on, on the couch or in their bed or, or uh, in the kitchen or what have you, um, and, and get a real cardiopulmonary assessment continuously having all of those metrics, it'd kind of be seven different tools strapped onto you that are all talking to the same backend system. We do that with just our, our cloth and our device. Got it. Yeah. So we're jumping ahead, but you know, the, the biomarkers, so there's 85 different biomarkers, it sounds that as of a recent recording that I was doing research on leading up to this interview, I'm sure there's more now and, and a couple of derivatives of, of those 85, but it's a wearable device that's used in home. Um, it, it just walk us through the use case. Is it once a day, three times a day, you know, and, and what are the patients again? Yeah. Good question. I'm not, I'm not punting on your question. The answer is it does depend. Uh, we are focused on a patient population that is that is kind of at the the the, the lower end of of regression in, in structural cardiology diagnosis. So, unfortunately, when a patient is is diagnosed with a structural heart issue, sadly they're on kind of a a one way regression. Um, Andy, we can hold them at certain spots with different therapeutics and different lifestyle modifications, what have you. But but ultimately, they they're probably going to need some sort of procedure or an implantable device, or, or in worst cases, you know, uh, extending that time for a heart transplant to be available. Um, and what's missing along that entire journey 
uh, of that patient is recurrent cardiopulmonary assessments. I use the word pulmonary because that's important to understand here. Patients with heart failure or other structural heart diseases, uh, you can't just look at the heart in a vacuum. The heart and the lungs, the central vascular and the hemodynamic system are very intricately, intricately linked. And if you're not looking at all of those sort of biomarkers from each of those contiguous systems at the same time, you're probably missing the picture of what uh, that individual patient's risk is. The human body compensates for deficiencies in many amazing ways, but also very individualized ways. So if you and I went in and got our blood pressure, let's assume we were the exact same age, the exact same height, the exact same ethnicity, exact same BMI, uh, and your blood pressure said 130 over 90 and mine said 130 over 90, there is no way we could say that we have the exact same vascular health based on that one number in time. You have to sort of interpret, uh, interpret that with all the other biomarkers across the cardiopulmonary or heart, lung, central vascular and hemodynamic system. And that's where I think we, our, our product gives a very unique insight along that structural heart journey. Um, to give the providers that do, do those implantable devices or those procedures or those transplants and the end users that support them, the cardiologists, the interventionalists, and obviously the patients, um, a more trended understanding of when is that procedure really needed? Uh, can we get them in before it's too late? Uh, and can we get them off of it after it's, it's, it's already been successful? A lot of blind spots along that journey that we're hoping to uh, and starting to prove in early days. You're not at the point necessarily where you're preventing, you know, vascular cardiovascular disease. What you're proposing, at least for the killer app right now, is preventing acute, you know, procedures needed. And you're kind of projecting when you might need to intervene earlier for these patients that are already heading down that road. So I guess just for our audience, uh, Vank, just describe um, in detail the value that, you know, this, where is the value here? I mean, uh, you know, you're, you're going to have to pay for this product and eventually these, these procedures need to happen. Like what trials have you run and what, what's your main value sort of proposition here? Yeah, I guess the, the latter part, uh, we've done a, a slew of clinical studies across um, uh, some great academic institutions across the country. <clears throat> the most notable being um, a ongoing uh excuse me, study in uh, patients with um, diagnosed heart, fa heart failure, both systolic and diastolic heart failure. Um, and that is being led uh, at Penn State University or Penn State Health uh, by a PI named Dr. John Boehmer. Um, and then our probably second uh, one that's worthwhile is, is a uh, continuous blood pressure, intermittent blood pressure uh, in the ability to uh, diagnose and, and understand differences in hypertension um, levels. So that was a, uh, a study we just completed um, this year um, in uh, eight different locations across the U.S., uh, the New York metro area, five boroughs, um, Westchester County, North Jersey, Central Pennsylvania, Eastern Pennsylvania, and suburban Atlanta, Georgia. The important thing about both of those studies is that uh, we're probably jumping ahead, but we, we received FDA clearances, uh, several of them from the cloth through the device, through the layered sort of end-to-end -end software platform <clears throat> that sits on top of it. 
but we do not have clearances for the data-driven diagnostics that we're talking about. So this gets into the value question that, that you were discussing. A machine learning-based diagnostic utilizing all of those 85 biomarkers that we talked about across the heart, lung, central vascular, and hemodynamic system uh, we are using that data inputs, very clean, high signal to noise ratio, but a lot of it every millisecond over that 45 minutes or an hour um, and uh, deriving sort of calculations against gold standard devices to give a non-invasive at home tool for potentially diagnosing hypertension, worsening heart failure, uh, other aspects of structural heart. That's really the value that we can drive. Uh, at home because these procedures or, or this type of diagnosis is only able to be done with something invasive in a hospital. So an A-line in your in your arm, right, for continuous blood pressure um, or a swan gans through your groin that's going into your right heart that's doing a right heart catheterization for another hemodynamic, like cardiac output, pulmonary arterial pressure. Is that like a CardioMEMS type product? That's one aspect, right? So CardioMEMS would, would do fractionally <clears throat> sort of what we are, what we are, what we are potentially able to, de to determine. So pulmonary arterial pressure is, is obviously a big hemodynamic metric that cardi CardioMEMS uh, targets with their sort of implantable device, very sleek solution. Um, but what if we can sort of support that um, in a non-invasive way, either before CardioMEMS is put in, or even potentially afterwards. We don't look at ourselves really as a competitor to these types of products. We look at our, ourselves as more of a complement uh, along that journey, you know, before uh, before that that procedure or implant is needed. Uh, I'd say a company like CardioMEMS would probably want this more upstream to understand what patients are more viable for their for their product downstream, as opposed to right now, which is kind of you know we think that this will work here. And, and unfortunately, that's what we're doing in Structural Heart. So, so Venk, our, our audience is comprised of, you know, hardware developers, leaders in the med tech space, as well as significant, you know, work in software algorithm space, right? So as you formed NanoWare, you know, you mentioned, you know, you started with the cloth, kind of teased out generally, like what the product would look like. And pretty quickly, you know, there was this whole algorithm piece and machine learning AI Describe the AI ML algorithms at a high level first, and then maybe talk a little bit about like your company structure and how you're actually doing that. It's been a long ride, and we've got a lot, lot more to do. Uh, when you start with cloth hardware, mobile software, cloud software, and, the, and then obviously AI ML. But I guess from a before just jumping into the AI ML, our our goal from the beginning, even though we really didn't understand how we were going to get there, that that came over time was really understanding the data quality from our cloth is just superior to, to, to what else is out there. And because the data quality is so superior from a raw signal standpoint, and we get a lot of these different biomarkers continuously, we can really do uh, something from a data standpoint that nobody else can. And um, that's really the vision that we had that ultimately people are going to buy our product or our services because of the data and the insights we can give. Uh, from that. And that's really done by machine learning. Um, we can call it AI. I really don't like that term. I, 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 I personally never really liked it in healthcare. I think it's probably applicable for static data, right? So image analysis, 
natural language processing or speech recognition. Not only is are the AI engines pretty sophisticated with that, but also regulatory bodies are are, are okay with that as well. You know, a radiological scan of your lungs, you can look at millions of them and, and AI can sort of detect things. We're talking about cardiopulmonary dynamic data. You know, your blood pressure changes every second. You know, your 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 cardiac output will change, right? Um, and so it's a little bit trickier there. So when we think about ML and healthcare, these are not adaptive algorithms, right? Uh, we will prove them in both the training and then a validation set in our clinical studies. Take that through FDA, work with them on the iterations, stuff like that. Um, and then take it also in parallel through the peer review community, right? Because in healthcare, FDA clearances don't just drive adoption. You need good, sound peer review uh, publications against gold standard devices. So we fix our algorithm, Andy, and then we put it into the field. If we wanted to make an update to that based on more data, depending on uh, the clearance with FDA, that could be a letter to file or you're, you're redoing a, a new 510K. So it's not like traditional AI that gets smarter over time with real world evidence. That will be very, I, I don't know if that's coming anytime soon uh, in healthcare, but because um, what happens if the machine's wrong? Who's liable? Right? So you're, you're maturing your algorithm as you get more data through these studies and eventually you're going to submit your probably your first sort of ML um, uh, software release on your platform that says you'll you're trying I guess what are you trying to claim what what do you think will be your first claim um, with this uh, machine learning algorithm that's running on your platform yeah the first one we're hoping for is sort of systemic hemodynamics most of this is around hemodynamic uh, detection right which really can only be done invasively. Uh, by sending lines into the artery or to the central veins, right? Um, if we can do that uh, non-invasively, that's a real value driver. And the reason we know we can do it is, is that all of our inputs, whether that's electrocardiographs, whether that's lung volume, breaths per minute, uh, acoustic sounds, sounds of your heart, the different frequency levels, the loudness of them, these all have known associations to changes in hemodynamics, right? By literature over the last 40 years. So we know our scientific approach is sound, but because it's ML, you need a lot of data to prove that. And so the beauty is of our of our SASH, we can calculate all of that from a millisecond standpoint. But the first one that we are hoping to get proved would be for intermittent or continuous blood pressure throughout that 45 minute or one hour recording with the ability to diagnose hypertension. So um, a lot of the continuous non-invasive monitors that are doing blood pressure and there are a good amount out there uh, on on both the the arm as well as uh, the wrist. They follow a similar scientific principle, whether it's <clears throat> occlusion of the blood, you're cutting off the blood and then opening it, and then under you know listening to the noise standard old hundred year old process of blood pressure, or um, a mathematical relationship called pulse wave transit time. Uh, we are doing something completely different. We're calculating blood pressure across the aorta with all of those inputs. Uh, that we measured. So a true systemic hemodynamic measurement. And then um, we would want to extend that to additional hemodynamic measurements. So as we mentioned, cardiac output, pulmonary arterial pressure, cardiac power output, uh, which we're also starting validation on at a uh, renowned site in the US, um, actually any week now. We, we just received IRB approval from that. You you're initially said you're going for continuous blood pressure to diagnose you know, hypertension. I mean... I thought you were saying that these patients are already, you know, sick (laughs) 
and they're on their way to surgery. So, you know, aren't, isn't, don't they already have hypertension or is this just a more accurate measure of it and watching it sort of decay? And that's kind of your, your biomarker. It's kind of think of it this way in, in whichever clearance we get is not what's solving the entire issue. It's another step that's getting more of an understanding of the cardiopulmonary complex and the heart, lung, central vascular and hemodynamic system. The more we understand of that individual's relationship. So again, it's not just the blood pressure we're looking at with all these patients, right? It's the blood pressure now plus their heart rate variability from the electrocardiographs, their lung volume decreasing or increasing, plus their breaths per minute, plus their activity movement posture, plus their heart sounds. You know, heart failure patients have an S3 murmur that pops up. We have healthy patients. We just have two murmurs, the S1, S2, the lub-dub sound of your heart, but heart failure patients have an extra one. So we're combining all of those things together. And then when you can add cardiac output, pulmonary therapy, all these things in a sort of algorithmic soup is where you're going to get the best understanding of a risk signature. If you just looked at one or two of those metrics, it's going to be very difficult to build an association, uh, specifically with a disease as, as complicated as, as a structural heart disorder. We all kind of get there in a different way. Um, there's so many comorbidities that lead to it. It's not just hypertension as an example. No, I mean, as you're describing your, your product, you know, it, you, I'm thinking like, what is your moat? And it sounds like your moat is a combination of things. I mean, obviously the, the core uh, nanotechnology that was developed over decades, um, that's one piece and, you know, competition is going to have probably sensors all over the body and that's not what somebody wants to use. Um, and an Apple watch can only kind of collect so much data, I suppose. Um, although there are some sort of digital exhaust, uh, biomarkers out there that may be able to help, but that's kind of way far out there, I would think. Plus, you know, all these, all the algorithm, uh, work that you're doing. So thank for our audience. And we, we do talk to a lot of companies, globals and startups that, you know, are similar structure to you where they're developing some hardware by maybe it's a bioelectronic therapy or something like that. Um, or a global company that's adding um, connectivity to things like blood collection or, you know, you know, traditionally purely mechanical com uh, components. Um, just talk to us a little bit more about your software team. Um, I mean, these, these algorithms that you're developing, this is big data. I think, you know, petabytes might've been the, the term I read in one of your papers. So, you know, what does your team look like? When did you decide to kind of start building that team and what, do, what did it look like then? And what does it look like now? This is probably the the part of of our journey as a startup that makes me smile the most and and probably makes me the most proud. Um, we're still a tiny team, you know. We're under we're under thirty people. Uh, like I said, seven years in, we we just launched commercially this year. Uh, we don't have a sales and marketing team yet. Um, you know, we're very product R and D and clinical focused, and that includes and sort of pervades hardware. You know. The advanced materials, the hardware, the firmware, the mobile uh, server-based software, and then ultimately ML. So when we constructed the team, the original seven of us was um, myself and our co-founder, Dr. Vijay Bharathan, four of his former master's and PhD students, um, and then a, a good friend of uh, a longtime colleague of mine in, in, in the finance world who, who came on with me to start... Uh, uh, the, the business development and sort of strategy kind of just just run the front office with me. Uh, uh, he's still an advisor to the company, Reggie Hall. Um, but the four founding engineers were sort of my first self 
in building the team. I had to sort of, when, when my father sort of approached me with this idea, my multivariable calculus and BME all kind of came back all at once after 15 years of kind of me keeping that dormant. I called up his four guys and I said, you know, so my father never really had an ambition of potentially starting a company. He's an academic, right? He wanted to publish and one day speak in, in Stockholm, right? Which is still his goal, right? Uh, uh, whereas I, I kind of had more of a, the business mind, it says like, let's build something, a, a, a for-profit business out of this that can also save lives, right? Uh, sort of bridging that altruism with, with capitalism, which I think all of us jump into healthcare in particular with. But, uh, but um, it was to convince those guys, hey, the degree is always going to be there for you, but we've got an opportunity to start something really special here. Uh, and this was back in 2014 when the word wearable was, 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 was popping off the charts, as you can imagine. Um, but we kind of had a long standing strategy discussion for the first six to 12 months on what do we want to be and what is our core value that we can give in differentiating. And ultimately, it was always going to be on the software and ML side. We didn't have those capabilities in house then. This was mostly hardware materials. Uh, and BME. So what we tasked our current CTO, Prashant um, Sham Kumar, and uh, Mali Ramasamy did, did 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 a little bit. He's our head of product as well. But Prashant really uh, just took this upon himself. Uh, just started learning code uh, from seven years ago. You know, and um, I would say he's one of the best data scientists that you can see in the market today. And uh, it's because he understands our fire hose of data better than anyone else. You can, you can be ML and AI and look at all these different data sets and just comb them through and come up with some association and publish on it. It's great, right? It's tough to do in healthcare. When you talk about the moats that we build, uh, it's not only the patents on this and the patents on the product and the design, but it's also an understanding of how to optimize the data uh, that's off the body. And that, that comes from firmware all the way to data-driven code. So Prashant really manages that part of our, of our business and, and you know, his team. And then on the software side, uh, we were fortunate to, uh, and I was courting this guy, this gentleman, Zach Taylor, for four years uh, before, he, before I could convince him to, to join us. Uh, but he's been a good friend of the company. I've actually, I actually grew up with him. Uh, he was one of those first software PhDs that dropped out of high school uh, and just started coding in the 90s, moved to Boston, moved to San Francisco, uh, been at a slew of different companies from med tech to mostly consumer startups, um, had a slew of exits as well. It's huge, Andy. You, you bring up the best point. The reason I wanted Zach forever was because healthcare at home was on the digital health side either took two approaches. You approached it from, as a med device company and you were laser focused on safety and efficacy, or you took it from the health and wellness side and you were really focused on usability. And if you did this, you were ignoring this, or if you did this, you were ignoring this. And that's where I think a lot of the Gen 1 and Gen 2 companies kind of failed uh, in, in driving mass adoption because they could never really drive both. And so Zach, with that experience, really brought in a usability aspect and a, and a customer development aspect where he would kind of just sit with our KOLs across the country and across the, the user base 
understand all the differences on how everybody uses technology. The, the sad thing or, or maybe good thing about healthcare is, is that there isn't a single clinic that works the same way, right? Uh, uh, some, they, some they have different staff, they have different people. Sometimes the receptionist is doing all the org work. Sometimes the physician is. Uh, it's very different from Joplin, Missouri to Beverly Hills to, to, to Manhattan. So if you build one solution with Mayo Clinic and think you can just disperse it across all the clinics out there, it's probably not going to be uh, understood uh, by everybody or adopted by everybody who isn't used to that same workflow or that same database. So Zach did a great job building our software stack to be customizable uh, for the end user. And um, those two really have been, have been critical uh, to our success. Uh, and the people that report to them, obviously. Yeah, I just want to pause on that real quick. One of the themes that Key Tech we've been talking about for for years is, you know, it, it's important to have technical um, team members out in the field interviewing your customers, your KOLs, because you know they're going to turn around and immediately start coding early prototypes and bringing that back to that person you have a relationship with, you know, rather than having someone who maybe doesn't understand software and is kind of just thinking about just the workflow, you know, like there's questions you come up with that, that, you know, a, a software developer can think of, you know, maybe it's like the 10 different ways to prompt something or how are you going to view this data that somebody who isn't skilled in, in software development is not going to be able to think of on the fly. So it's kind of just a more efficient way to, to gather market data. So it sounds like that was, you know, critical to, to building the bones of, of the, um, of the cloud-based, you know, algorithm work that you're, you're, you're implementing. You got to do it leanly, Andy. I mean, it's, it, as a startup, it, I think it's important. And I, I don't want to belittle what these guys and girls did on our team. Um, there was, there was, there was a pushed mandate to understand as much as possible. And we didn't have a field services team. So I really commend them on how much they understood that all of this upfront work, as tedious as it was with different personalities all over the place, was something we pushed from the top down. And, and I think that we were seeing the fruits of that labor um, uh, from years ago. So just today, you know, you, you mentioned you have about a 30 person company. How many people are, you know, doing like the machine learning kind of algorithm and data management side? Is that about half the three? Okay. We've talked a lot about data and it sounds like this is an ever evolving story, but um, what, when you started the company, seemed like you were pretty confident that the, the tech worked and that you could create some sort of wearable that would gather the data. Um, but, you know, I, I'm picturing seven years ago, you're getting some revenue from, you know, an American in Hollywood. And, you know, you're saying, let's just go all in on this thing. Like, you know, I, I guess just describe to our audience, you know, what, what, what data were you really trying to capture? I don't know, in the first year, I guess, maybe year and a half to like convince you, the founder CEO, that like, this is actually something that has legs. And 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 I guess I say you, because I get the impression that you've kind of just been gathering money from friends, you know, recruiting friends and family and things like that. But eventually, you know, I, I'm sure you had to, um, we'll, we'll talk about investor pitches and things in a minute, but I guess what were you specifically looking for to convince yourself that you're going to devote your life to this. And I think the first thing we decided was we are going to be a healthcare company. Uh, when we made that decision, as opposed to, are we going to work with athletes and fitness? Are we going to be on the consumer side? Uh, well, time will tell whether the business decision was right, but I didn't want to start competing with, with the apples of the world and 
Nike was diving in and Under Armour was diving in there. And there were some consumer wearables that were really well funded at the time. And we just felt that differentiation we had, the moats that we had with this tech was more suited for healthcare. Investors hated that, which we'll talk about in a second, as you can imagine. But I felt like until we got an FDA clearance on the cloth, this was not going to be really taken seriously in the world of FDA. I hadn't even really thought of a business model, which we'll talk about. I have a funny story about that with one of our first investors. We just went heads down after the first six months um, to get a clearance for the cloth on uh, multi-channel electrocardiographs and sort of pulmonary metrics, so breaths per minute and and derivation. So we got that clearance in 2016, but started working with FDA as early in 2015 on that. And that was our first sort of introduction to the regulatory bodies. And really, uh, you know, obviously pre-pandemic, we were down in DC, you know, 11 times over that, that discussion because FDA had never seen this cloth before. And um, we had to do some very unique sort of safety and efficacy characterizations uh, given that there wasn't really an analog to this. That was really the, the goal that I set out with. Like, until we get this clearance, people aren't even going to take anything we say from a business model standpoint seriously, even though I didn't really understand the business model back then either. Yeah, real quick on that. I mean, you, you got clearance. Were you pursuing revenue with that clearance as a way to sort of justify you know, that activity or to show investors? Or was it just like, okay, we checked that box. Now let's start building this thing. I would love to say that there was an idea of collecting revenue with it. The answer was no. Um, uh, and again, something investors hated. It, it, to me, it had to be a stepwise progression on what we could do that was different than what was out there. But until we sort of proved that we are medical grade, um, that would have been very challenging to bring in more capital uh, for the next phase, right? You have to be careful with this to always do ongoing and everlasting science projects, right? Um, but we did not believe that just an electrocardiograph and lung monitor clearance was going to be sufficient to drive revenue. Um, and uh, we didn't know if we were 24-7 use case, if we were one hour. We hadn't tested it enough in the field from a real-world evidence standpoint. Um, but we were already starting to have ambitions and, 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 and technological, uh, 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 sort of perspective on how we could help for heart failure patients or structural heart patients. And just an electrocardiograph and lungs would not have aided, uh, in that regard. So long way to answer your question, it was stepwise. It was not pushed for revenue. Um, which is another thing that investors used to slap me around on. But okay, so so you got the core wearable uh, cleared, or the cloth? Uh, was it was it the cloth and the wearable? Or... It was actually a different form factor, but yes, the core of the two thousand page submission, eighteen hundred of it was on the cloth. But um, the design was actually a tank top for men and a bra for women, um, which is no longer our, our device um, form factor, which is. Uh, uh, a funny story because we we got that clearance. We said we want to add some more features to this that would enable it to to start getting in the world of heart failure. Um, and end users were like, "I love this idea of a tank top for men and a bra for women, but uh, I don't know how many six foot five, three hundred pound men are coming in this week, or how many thirty two A cup sizes are coming in this week." And it's just you know, one of those things that, that hits you on the head, knowing you're going to have a giant inventory management problem. And uh, 
So we knew we had to go gender neutral, size adjustable. I hate the word pivot. I, I never use that word in our co- in our company, but we had to adjust the design and um, the actual form factor. Did that really adjust the hardware and the material science? No, not at all. But that alone is is a trickier thing than just adjusting code and finding bugs in code. My software team is going to hate me for saying that because I know that that's not the easy part, but you know, rejigging re- um, uh, a, a vest or the sash, uh, you know, took some time. Uh, so that was also something that uh, folks don't like funding, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, hardware reiterations, right? So when did you start taking on investor money? We were funded um, as early as, as late 2014, early 2015, uh, both institutional and, and angel investors. And as a med tech or digital health company, you're, you're pretty much raising capital every day that you wake up uh, when you're a founder CEO. You close around, you're still talking about the next one already. So um, we have been, I'd say, fairly efficient with, with capital. Um, I don't know what I'm allowed to, to disclose here, but we've raised under 20 uh, uh, to date uh, over seven years and reached commercial uh, launch, which I think most companies in our space have raised, even if they're doing fractionally what we're doing, have raised 50 to 60 at minimum to get there. So I'm really proud of the efficiencies that the team has done. Management owns a lot of the company, which makes our, our stock value you know, very high as opposed to uh, uh, some bigger uh, digital health companies. Yeah, we've been sort of taking capital all day, but I'll tell you, one of our first institutional board meetings asked the exact same question you did, and I'll, I'll leave them nameless for now, but they said, all right, you, you think you're going to get this FDA clearance in a year. It took 18 months, 20 months, as opposed to a year. What are you going to do after that? And uh, show me your revenue model. I'm like, not ready to do that yet. I don't know. And I remember one of the partners at the table looking at me like I was the biggest fool. Uh, and why did we write this, this guy a check? And he's telling us he doesn't know what his business is yet. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know what the model was. I didn't want to be an arrhythmia company. I didn't want to just be an ECG company that was crowded. I didn't want to be a consumer company that was crowded. Um, and I was trying to really learn and be a a student of the case studies that this would unfold. Call me a little bit crazy, but the first company to market in a new field rarely becomes the standard of care, right? There was Lycos, there was Yahoo, there was Excite well before there was Google, right? Um, there were a lot of PC companies well before there were Apple. So Yeah, so, so question for you. We haven't talked really much about the patients. So what have you learned from the patients that you've then reflected in the product as it stands today? You mentioned the sizing. That's an obvious one. But, I mean, what are the patients saying? Number one, they're not going to wear it all day. So, you know, we think our thing's super comfortable but it is more cumbersome than putting on a watch or putting on a, 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 a patch. So one of the first things we learned from our patients is we're not going to do a 24-7 use case. Um, even though <clears throat> you could probably get the most benefit from that, Andy, you got to bridge in that usability and compliance aspect too. So part of that was also our understanding in parallel of the data quality we were getting. So when we were doing our heart failure study, which we kicked off in 2017, I believe, we were asking patients to wear our sash for 12 hours a day for 90 days straight. Uh, two hours before bed, overnight, two hours in the morning. Um, we didn't have horrible compliance issues. 
And that's simply because these patients are, are, are pretty sick, right? They'll, they'll try anything at this point. They're waking up in the middle of the night, maybe once a month or once a quarter, and their lungs have filled up with fluid and they can't breathe. They feel like they're drowning, right, from heart failure. So um, our compliance there was pretty good. But what we realized through that study and having, you know, 20 or so patients complete that first phase uh, in feasibility uh, of that really long data set, right, where we had petabytes of data, as we said, right? I mean, we were, we were getting almost a gig per patient per day um, uh, over 90 days uh, in, in raw data. We realized that because we're kind of longitudinally trending these patients, that we could understand the same characterization and picture of that sort of trend and regression, um, you know, with just a, a 45 minutes to an hour recording on a daily basis uh, versus 12 hours. And then we understood in talking to both our users and our patients, if you're a class two heart failure patient versus a class four, you probably don't need to record as often, right? So we leave that to the discretion of, 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 the, of the heart failure patient. But patients really like the aspect of being able to deploy it at home. And then when we said you only need to wear it for 45 minutes to an hour, they got really excited. And while it's still an ask on patients, when they understand, hey, you're going to spend 45 minutes just sitting on the subway or sitting on the 405 to get to your doctor's office, okay? And when you get there, you're going to be sitting in the waiting room. And you're going to get these 30 second measurements here. And it's, it's likely going to be wrong and, or it's talking to disparate devices, uh, backend. So you're not getting the signature. So I think now patients are kind of more motivated in this sort of category that we're starting with to understand the value. And we got to be honest, Andy, we got lucky with COVID, uh, with the pandemic hitting, uh, we're the first to admit that. There wasn't a put. We were kind of doing the same thing, and 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 the clinics or the end users of physicians didn't really care, right? Because the patients had no choice; they had to come in, right? Now the patients have a choice, and there's a focus on giving the patients what they want, right? And if you see what FDA commissioner is saying, CMS, everybody, healthcare at home is is the focus over the next five to ten years. So, I think that sort of industry shift also really helped the patients understand. I'd much rather do this. Yeah, you mentioned in our uh, warm up call a couple of weeks ago about, um, you know, that the line of nurses in a regional hospital are gone and they're never coming back. Um, and so just, you know, all the more reason why all these devices are being launched in the home. It's a bigger issue than we're willing to admit right now. And especially with structural heart. And again, I'm not picking on geographies. We're, we're all American and we've got sick hearts everywhere. But as you can imagine, um, the driver of healthcare costs are people that don't have the recurrent care, right? And that's our middle class or lower socioeconomic class, which is the majority of, of, of our country. And a lot of them live in rural areas, right? That are maybe 50 miles away from the nearest academic center at minimum, right? Let alone their community hospital center, which again, doesn't have the staff or the equipment to manage these patients, even if they did come in for an acute failure or they were trying to stay on top of it and manage those recurring assessments, there's really nothing for them, right? So now if you can kind of work with these companies who have digital teams, they can manage patients from Mississippi to Washington to New York to Maine, and they don't need physical people on the ground. So um, I think that's another industry wind that, you know, again, I'm not happy about. I'm not happy that nurses have quit 
uh, uh, across the country, but I understand why they did. And, and this is now a technological gap that can fill that need to address. Because even now when we're talking, you know, I'm sitting here in New York, you know, the governor's talking about the, the, the triple virus that's out there. It's RSV, it's COVID, and it's the flu hitting. You know, even here, we're, we're worried about if this kind of becomes a big deal, like in rural parts of the state, do we have the staffing to manage from a nurse standpoint? Do we have the staffing to manage uh, these patients when they come in with acute illnesses? So this is an issue that I don't think is, is, is going away. I don't think this is a near term. Everyone's jumping back into school here. Yeah, the answer is no. I mean, my wife works in the ER every night and there aren't enough nurses to staff empty ER ED rooms. So she ends up treating patients in the waiting room, like kind of like walking around an airport asking people, you know, what's wrong because there's not enough nursing to support them actually in the in the ED room. So, yeah, that's just one one anecdote. So, I was going to kind of just cut to a couple uh, closing question. I have actually one main closing question to close this out. And then for those of you listening uh, this far into the podcast, uh, in this episode, we are going to um, record a few additional bonus questions re- related to um, working with investors. So this will be the last question for the general audience. So, so Vank, um, you've been working on this for many years now. If you could go back and, and change one thing um, that you've done Knowing what you know now, you know what what would it be? It could be product, it could be hiring, it could be trial design, um, it could be fundraising. I don't know. Just what would you do differently? There's probably a million things. Uh, 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 I think any honest entrepreneur, first time founder, would would say that there were things I did last week which I wish wish I would have done differently. Um, if I had to pick one. Uh, one aspect, Andy, it would have been to keep my ears open as they are now, my ears and eyes open as they are now in my first 12 to 18 months. And what I mean by that is, is that um, I think every first time founder, particularly in healthcare, which is much, is very complicated. We're not making food delivery apps here, right? Um, or, or, you know, uh, something like that. You really, really need to humble yourself of what you don't know. And I think any first time founder or CEO that starts a business, we are probably diagnosably crazy or insane because we believe, we believe in our heart and our minds that this is broken, we can fix it, Right. And we can fix it faster than everybody tells, tells us we can. Anyone who says, don't get into that, that's stupid. That fuels us further, right? Um, but, with, but with that fuel, exactly. But with that fuel, you, you do, there's a natural inclination to kind of look around and be like, I don't want to listen to this advice because they're looking at this conservatively. They would have never done this. They don't have this tech. They don't know anything, right? Um, I think I've always been a learner, so I don't think my complex was that bad in that regard. Um, I don't believe I am some brilliant person. I have to surround myself with people, both on the team and at the board and at the advisory level, that that sort of know more. But I don't think I was as appreciative as I was um, until understanding what the real goal of building a business is. Because until you've done it, you haven't done it right? Until you've launched a product commercially in the market, you haven't done it, right? And particularly in healthcare, which is a 
challenging place. There's all types of things to consider from quality systems to reimbursement to regulatory to, to everything like that. So that would be my, my number one lesson for anyone diving in. Like, be never stop being a sponge, but you have to start being a sponge from the very beginning and soak in everything. Even if it's going through your filter and you're discussing and you're like, I'm going to dismiss that, you still got to listen. Um, because it's going to help shape the strategy going forward. I wish I did more of that in the first year. You know, you don't want, want to find out that maybe what you're pursuing, is, you know, could fail. And so, you, and there's like this, definitely this mentality of like, ignore the naysayers, ignore your competition and just focus on your mission and, you know, work hard and good thing, you know, make your own luck kind of thing. So I can see how that um, would happen. I guess what, what insight maybe did you ignore, um, do you think that uh, maybe you should have taken that advice sooner? I don't regret not understanding my commercial model, just sitting where we are today, um, Andy, because I think we have found the right nerve in the market that, again, kind of takes advantage of these industry wins we couldn't have predicted. We couldn't have predicted a pandemic was hitting in 2014, 2015, that it would have hit a year or two before we were launching commercially, right? I, I would say that a better understanding of the commercial aspect of the business is something I personally should have spent more time on uh, in the first year, in the second year, um, really understanding the different stakeholders in the conundrum. It's not just patient and physician. If it was, it that would be pretty easy, right? Uh, or easier. Let me, let me, let me take that back. If, the, if it was, it would be easier, right? You've got payers, you've got government, you've got many other stakeholders in, in the conundrum in healthcare. And they all have to be weaved into your business model, right? Uh, if you're if you're only thinking about a few of them, as a, a good friend from a, a large cap device company says, it's very easy to get two or three of those right with your model. It's very hard to get all five of them right. Um, and uh, that's just something I didn't know uh, when I started. And if somebody had really hit me across the head in the first 12 months and say, these are your five stakeholders, your model has to address all of them equally in the current environment, and then it has to be ready to be flexible when one of those might change, reimbursement changes or, you know, something like that, you know, um, because it is fluid in that regard. So uh, it's not maybe as specific as you were looking for, but, but I think I think that's great. I mean, I, I was just judging the Johns Hopkins, uh, you know, graduate um, bioengineering design um, program earlier this week. And, you know, I don't envy uh, startup entrepreneurs, particularly in the med device space, they're presenting these case studies and, you know, does your tech work? You know, will users actually use it? Who's the payer? What's the business model? What's your total addressable market? There's so many things you need to balance and it's never perfect from the start. So you do have to be crazy to sort of jump into it. And, um, you know, but I, I think the, the feedback on like, at the end of the day, like, who are the stakeholders and you have to kind of meet them today or a year from now. And then three years from now, I mean, it's, I think that's pretty wise advice for, you know, we meet with a lot of um, here at key tech, a lot of startup companies that are kind of in love with their technology and they know the markets out there, but you know, I think we, we try to ask these tough questions early on to evaluate whether, whether we should work with this entrepreneur. So even, even this insight here, I, you know, we might use it in the next couple of weeks, even like tell us a little bit more about your business model. I think Andy, what you're getting at is obviously also through the lens of an investor or an acquirer or a public market investor, when you want to go public, 
there are so many different pockets of risk to your company. It's not just tech. It's not just regulatory. It's not just business models. It's not just reimbursement. It's not just personnel. You know, you have to be able to, if you chalk off four of those, but there's still so much risk in this other aspect, are you going to be able to close your Series A in this market? I don't think you will. That that would that was one of the things I, I wish I had sort of had my eyes and ears open more to in that regard. Thank well, hey, thank you so much for coming on MedTech Speed to Data. Glad you came on and you know, wish you best of luck in the market here in the coming years. Appreciate it. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Key Tech, for having me. Everybody, until next time. Thanks, Andy Rogers. Talk signing off. See you later. Thanks for tuning in to MedTech Speed to Data, a Key Tech podcast. Join us each month for more ways to get the right data faster to inform critical decisions. Find additional resources on our website, keytechinc.com. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe and please leave a review on iTunes whenever you listen. Thanks.